I'm Anna Parker. And I'm Miriam Chancellor. Welcome to Big Mistake, the podcast that unpacks the failures and mistakes of top professionals. So, to make us, and hopefully you, feel better about the mistakes we all make in our careers and lives, we'll be talking with high performers to understand the behind the scenes and less glamorous moments of the business world. Hello. Hello. How are you going today? I'm good. It is really cold today, but I'm I coping. I put the heating on for you. Down here. I did wonder if it was slightly warmer. Thank you. I do have really bad circulation in my fingers and toes, so that is appreciated. That hasn't prevented me from putting two pairs of socks on, though. Noted. I did think to myself, oh, every time Miriam's over, she complains how cold she is, so I wonder <laughs> if I could take that away, but no. No, still breathing. <laughs> I was listening to Armchair Expert the other day, which was one of my favourite podcasts, and they gave a new, different perspective on queue jumping, which I'm going to see if I can get a win on this one. Okay, you mean a win with me or win yeah, with would, the listeners? Whether you would do this. Okay. Well, the two different things, you're right. Okay. Listeners, a win with you. Okay, not fire away. Big long queue, mm-hmm. you walk up to the front of the queue you say to someone who's it's a merchandise queue, a Taylor Swift concert, mm-hmm. you say to them, I want that T-shirt. Please could you, here's, your, here's my credit card. Please could you buy me that T-shirt and buy yourself one as well. Because they acknowledge that they're getting a bit of an upper hand by going right to the front of the queue saying, I don't want to wait in this queue. Please buy me this T-shirt, this size, and to get yourself one too. Yeah. I'm cool with that, but I think you have to frame it in a way where the person doesn't feel absolutely obligated to as well. Um, yeah, no, I don't have any issue with that. No. Yeah, it's it's a bit different. It's a bit different. Why is it different? Why is it different? Well, What do you think? I think that if you're on the line of, I don't want a queue jump, yeah. Then giving someone your credit card, you're asking them to put through two transactions. Yeah. So whether there was another body there or not, whether you're stood yeah, there as a body, you, you are asking for two credit card transactions because presumably they're in the line because they want their stuff. And then they're going to yeah. have to say, oh, can I get two T-shirts on this credit card? Mm. But if you think about the issue with queue jumping, if you're, say, 10th in queue and you've got nine people in front of you, you don't know how many how long it's going to take right because people take varying lengths of yeah. time at the at the front of the queue so a lot of the frustration actually comes from visibly seeing people cut in because it's it's the principle of it it's not so much the fact that it's going to take another person's transaction longer so if you remove the visible signal that distresses people which is someone stepping in front, arguably you could say, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Do you get what I'm saying? I know that most people's arguments are illogical and this falls into that category because yeah. I'm looking on a time basis. So when I look at something, I'm looking at efficiency and time. Yeah. And I'm more annoyed that someone's going to take up extra time than I am by an extra body being there. And you're saying it from the different perspective. I'm saying it from the opposite. I'm saying that the the stress that Q-jumping... Q, Q take uh, is uh you know that causes is because of the visible the someone visibly stepping in line not so much on the time because the time is you don't know 
you don't know how long it's going to take. There's, but if everyone only got like a 30 second slot or a minute slot, then that would probably change it again. So I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Speaking of, because we were obviously talking about that on the last podcast. So speaking of things we've talked about on podcasts previously, the most recent episode with Brianne West, we were speaking about the challenge of disassociating yourself from your work in order to receive constructive criticism. Because mm-hmm. most people would agree that constructive criticism, although it can be helpful, is is hard, particularly when your your soul or you know your essence of being is caught up in the work that's being being criticised. And I happen to be listening to a great episode of. Uh, the Tim Ferriss show where Tim is interviewing Seth Godin, who was a marketing guru. And it was amazing. Seth was talking about this very, very thing. And the way he framed it so simply was be, sh- be aware that when people provide feedback, they're criticizing the idea, not the person. I thought that was a nice way of summarizing. And that's different to what I said, how? Oh, I just thought that was more simply put. Yeah. <laughs> Better articulated, Anna. you said it, Anna, was rubbish. Yeah, oh, no. I'll get back to It was just here. a way of expressing it in few words. But what I was getting at, actually, was the fact that he has this exercise, and I think this was done for a, for a publishing purpose, so it wasn't just a theoretical exercise, where he wanted to write a blog or a book or something, and there was this chapter that still needed to be written. And what he did is he just gave it to someone uh, to write a paragraph. And the expectation was you're just starting the process. But once you've written your paragraph, you hand it on to someone else. And so it's and then that person hands it on to someone else. So it's this iterative process. And at each point, feedback is being given. And the principle being you're not allowed to criticize the the person it's seen as this just part of the exercise that's taking place and I thought to myself is there a way of removing like how can we lessen this feeling of oh this hurt that comes with receiving feedback and I realized that I think a lot of the fear or pain comes from the fact that people struggle to receive feedback when they've already invested so much time and energy into this thing but if you if you seek feedback early, I think it's going to be easier. So the the thinking is that you know, like for instance, when we were starting this this podcast, we were r- probably running the idea by a lot of people early and often. But let's say, you know, we're at the stage now where we're continuing to receive feedback about how we most effectively run this. I admit sometimes it can be a little bit harder to hear because we've already started out on a certain path as opposed to receiving it early when it's still fresh, things are still up for grabs. So in other words, the long story short being don't wait until you have tried to perfect something before you receive feedback because that's going to be so much harder than if you had involved people at earlier stages. And also be careful the people you choose to get feedback from as well. Yes, and I guess recognising that everyone will have a different opinion. It doesn't necessarily mean you should listen to everyone's feedback, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's going on with your golf? Uh, well, I took a two-month hiatus because it's in Europe. So, yeah, I haven't got back into it. I'm, I I probably realistically won't be doing much with it. Yeah, with everything Short-lived. going on. Short-lived. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, in all honesty, if it, if it was 
Yeah, look, come summer, we'll see. But like, I'm not in it to. I'm not so hardcore that I'm. I'm going to be um, out in this weather. But if it comes summer, then I might pick it up again. Oh, yeah. But I, I have no ambition to live and breathe it. Is that okay? Will we still well, be friends? <laughs> <laughs> what have you got planned? Well, all I want to do is play around at the hills with Michael Hill. Oh yeah, that so was that, the plan. So that's that. a mission. So once that mission was completed, I was perfectly happy for you to let it drop. Yeah, well, that still so I like I like a goal. Yeah. We had a goal. We still chat, me and Michael. We exchange. So we still, He's invited me on a super yacht. Amazing. Yeah. So we still need to get the, that round in. Yeah. He's a very busy guy. Every time I'm. Maybe he's just maybe he's just being polite. Every time I'm like, "Hey, I'm in Queenstown. What's up? Should we hang out?" He's like, "I'm away. I'm away. I'm away." What? There is a very fine squeaking noise coming from somewhere. Can you hear that? Yeah, very high frequency. Oh no, it's gone now. Oh, what are you doing? Oh. Oh, so? am I locked in? Oh, with Miriam. Oh, is oh. that what you were doing? Is you were trying to signal it's to us? Secret oh, my God. Was being oblivious. Oh. No, I wasn't. I was just like, They're, whatever the problem is, you will deal. I wasn't oblivious to the calls. I wasn't oblivious to any me? of it. I was just like, whatever the issue is, you need to deal. I okay. <laughs> I love that. You have a secret whistle. Yeah. What is... What is... Well, it's that. So when we're out, so it works really well if we're in supermarkets. So, you know, going back to the whole shouting thing. Yeah. Well, I'll never hear Michael say, like, Anna, or shout or yeah, anything. Yeah. I'll just listen for this whistle, and I can locate it really quickly. That's so cute. He wasn't wanting to interrupt. He was just playing this high-frequency sound from... Although, you know, it gets to a point where you can't hear high frequencies once you get over a certain age. No. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, so so that might not be a high enough frequency, but there oh. are certain frequencies that are so high... Like, if you go right up, only dogs can hear them. And then if you go down a bit, it's like only people under the age of 21-ish can hear it. So I, so whatever he wanted from me, I was just thinking, you can deal with it. You so need, did you, you realise that it was him before? Yeah, I realised because what, there, was, there was texts, oh. phone was going off, all of he this. Sort of. Well, he and needed I my was, car keys. And, and, then I, and then as soon as he said, I'm blocked in. By Miriam, like a, yeah. this is an unsolvable problem. Yeah, it is an unsolvable unless problem. I come in and get the key. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, so yes, long story short, we will see about the uh, the golf. I'm not convinced. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Malcolm, that's who we interviewed today. Malcolm, what a treat! This oh man, we keep saying this is one of our favorite episodes yet. I love this one for so many reasons, but there was so many, you know, when you, when you hear someone speaking and you're waiting for them to finish and you think, oh my goodness, this conversation could go off in so Definitely. many angles. This was one of those conversations. And I also ended it thinking I would work for you. <laughs> he might not think that. No. Yeah. But I ended up thinking I, I, you are the sort of leader yeah. that I would want to work alongside. Well, do you, the, you're, you're quite comfortable not being subtle about that. Yeah. Hello, hello, Malcolm. So yes, Malcolm Johns. You do know though that what? um throughout my whole career, I've never really chosen the the work. Let's say. I mean, law's law, you know, insurance is insurance. I've chosen the people, the leaders of that organisation, and I've thought I could definitely work alongside you or I respect and admire you. I hear you. And once that goes, or once you don't have that, then... 
what's the yeah, point? Yeah, what's the point? Yeah, it's about the people at the end of the day. Yeah. Or and I think probably equally, although the may this may again be a reflection on the type of people in the company, is not applying for a job on the basis of the job itself, but on the the organization and if an organization greatly values a person, they will find a job to best Absolutely. Uh, you know, what's the word I'm, what's the word I'm You're hiring for? for the person. You're hiring the for the person and you'll find a way to, you'll find a role, you'll even make up a role. Totally agree. To, to have that person on board and, and in a way that best um, showcases their strengths and whatever. I totally whatever agree. Way. Yeah. So Malcolm Johns, uh, he's recently in the last six months taken up the role of chief executive at Genesis Energy. They're doing uh, some amazing things in the energy sector. Uh, but prior to that, he's he's largely uh, recognised for his role as chief exec at the Christchurch Airport. And he was down there during the, uh, you know, during some of the traumatic events that Christchurch has been through over the last few years. And we hear about that in the episode He's also on the advisory board for Climate Leaders Coalition, which is an organisation that helps businesses become more climate conscious in the way that they operate. Uh, and he's done a million other things. And one one of the questions that I did want to ask him about, that, but we didn't have the chance, was his views on education, because he's got so many degrees, uh, not just in New Zealand, but abroad as well. And that was another thing I found really impressive, is that... There are so many organisations I could point to that someone has just stayed there for a long time. They've just worked their way through the ranks and they're not necessarily, they might be amazing at their job, their role, but they're not amazing at leading other people or getting the best out of a person or thinking about how individual we all are as people. So to to hear him say the level of effort that he had gone to from a psychology and a behavioural perspective was incredible to me, for me. A to very well-rounded professional, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. And we just did we did have an interesting conversation after the podcast included, which made us think we're going to have to do a round two at some stage because there were so many things untapped. So if you've liked... Uh, would you make a comparison to any episode we've done before? No, no, this is unique. This is unique, yeah. Do you know what? I like that you said unique, not very unique. You know, a lot of people say very unique, but if it's unique, it doesn't need a very in front of it. Anyway, that goes along with my uh, I try I, words I removed this year were just oh good on you and I mean sorry's been gone for a long time yeah <laughs> it's yeah, very rare I'll say sorry <laughs> but uh, I hear it a lot yes and it oh it's so annoying anyway yeah. well actually, God, it's annoying I know can I jump in there because okay. I agree and I have noticed it more and more and more I think I counted. Four or five sorries from strangers on one day mm, once. Yeah. And I have started my my response now because usually I'm like, it's okay. And I say in a cheerful voice, but I'm like, well, no, that's not the right response. The right response is don't be. So when someone says sorry, I'm, my now response is don't be. Because people just apologize for taking up space, especially women. I mean, guys do it as well, but... But especially women. So it is, it's crazy. I'm hearing it it in the context of, and you will too, that people won't want to share their opinion without starting by saying, 
sorry, but I just need to say, or they'll be halfway through talking mm. and they'll be apologising for the sentence of what they're in the mm. middle of saying or the action they're about to ask you to do. And by the time you've finished one sentence, there's a sorry at the beginning, a load of sorries in the middle and a load of sorries in the end. I haven't heard it to that extent. Oh, I, did. Yeah. I have. And I, there's so much confidence that's lost from my perspective, hearing that from yes. another person. Oh, yeah, of course. Because I'm just thinking, do you even know what... You're, do you know what the instructions you're talking about? Do you know what your opinion you're sharing? And I'm having a really hard time listening because all I'm doing is focusing on all the stories yeah. you're saying. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And it, removing the just as well yeah, has been really just. important this year. Kind of is another one it, that dilutes the message. Kind of. Because you're softening what you're saying because you're not wanting to be seen to be giving an opinion. And the just came about because I kept hearing people say, oh, just me. I was like, or it's or it's me. I'm here, or oh, yeah. or uh, just just one child. Will you have one child? Yeah. Or I'm just following up. No, you're following up. <laughs> yeah. Written communication. I find it's harder to get out of it, but I do sometimes think it potentially serves a purpose on the written comms front. Why? Because because it it can tactically strategically make something sound more conversational. So I'm, I agree on the whole of the principle. I think we use it too much. And certainly uh, I don't think it does anyone any favours in spoken communication. But sometimes I will intentionally leave it in there because I'm pretty much intentional every time I use it. And I think actually, depending on the person that's receiving this email, I think it could possibly benefit from a just here. Yeah, interesting. Oh man, that's a whole another conversation with with language. So I guess the 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 help or tip there is, if you are contributing in a meeting, just think about what is what is what what is the first thing, what is the first word that you're wanting to express, and conscientize that before opening your mouth, so that the first thing that comes out of your mouth isn't sorry. On that note, Malcolm Johns, CEO of Genesis Energy, past CEO of Christchurch Airport. We hope you enjoy this episode because we definitely did. Straight mm. into it. Uh, you have a opening question for us. I Anna. do. Okay, do you want to take the reins? I will. Okay. So uh, how do you become a CEO? <laughs> <laughs> Are you shoulder tabbed? Do you wake up one morning and think, I want to be a CEO? Ah, how do you become a CEO? I mean, ultimately, CEOs are appointed by somebody else. Yes. Um, But I think it is something that uh, you focus as as a goal. You focus in on that's that's the position for me. Um, This is my uh, fifth CEO role. Uh, So I I first became a chief executive when I was 28. Uh, And that was after four consecutive jobs of about 18 months. In duration, uh, where I just I just couldn't I couldn't settle into being a passenger in someone else's uh, journey, etc. Uh, and so for me, my career has been very much around the desire to captain my own ship, if you like. Um, and uh, each ship's got a little bit bigger as I've gone through uh, life, uh, and the captain's gone from. Uh, being a command and control captain to being a coach to now really being the conductor of an orchestra. Mm, Well, beautifully, Mm. beautifully put. Because I would imagine there's certainly outwardly looking in, there is a 
the, the perception that it's this glamorous, high-status role where you can just delegate everything. And, and No one's telling you what to do. Yeah, no one's telling you what to do. What are some perhaps misconceptions or, or even things that you learnt about the nature of a CEO role? And I, I appreciate that it probably varies a lot from, from company to company. Mm-hmm. But what were perhaps some things that you where expectations didn't meet reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 30-year-old Malcolm was a command and control uh, chief executive, um, and I didn't realise at that point uh, that being dyslexic, thinking in pictures, struggling with reading, uh, being good at storytelling, uh meant that you weren't very good at letting other people into that and so <clears throat> I had a I had a distinct personality flaw where I thought really deeply about an issue a question etc uh, and once I'd finished all my thinking and had fully formed it in my mind then I started the conversation with others and so you leave people no room to participate to contribute uh, etc. And through my 30s was very much a process of learning how to uh, control that, uh, learning how to turn that into something good rather than uh, something that crowded everybody out. So I went through a process of taking on board a personal coach uh, who worked with me around how do I open up the real estate for other people to be part of the conversation of defining the issue uh, before I'd gone through all of that process mm. in my head. So I start conversations much, much earlier these days. Mm. Um, my 40s uh, was very much uh, spent in Christchurch post-earthquake. Uh, I went to Christchurch because of the earthquake. I wanted to be part of the rebuild. Uh, and I've come back to Auckland to Genesis because I want to be part of getting New Zealand to net zero 2050. Mm. And in uh, my time in Christchurch really was about dealing with a series of events that were very unforeseen, the earthquakes, uh, the Port Hills fire, the terror attacks, COVID-19, etc. And so uh, you, 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 you evolve from allowing people into the conversation and, uh, and being much more, as I said, a coach of that, that conversation to an outcome. Uh, to being the conductor of an orchestra where you're actually trusting people you know, to run the violin section, the percussion section, etc. And uh, whilst you're very clear on the music you want to play, uh, you've resisted the temptation to ever pick up an instrument. <clears throat> so where, where I'm at today in terms of my, my career is uh, understanding uh, uh, who I am, um, how what I have as, as my, my strengths, uh, how I can deploy them to enable others to, uh, you know, to contribute uh, and to perform and to have impact uh, in a way that I don't feel I need to pick up an instrument anymore. Mm. And, uh, and so um, I think uh, your question is how do you become a chief executive? Um, becoming a chief executive is one thing, uh, becoming a good chief executive is another thing, 
uh, becoming an exceptional leader is something quite different. I think there's a huge personal journey from start to finish in that. So there's no one answer, how do you become a chief executive? Um, uh, but uh, how you become a good leader, I think, is uh, very much predicated in understanding um, where the limitations of your own character are. Is that when someone pulls you up? So you said that you started out at that command and control and then you got a coach and you changed your style. Is that because someone said, I don't like the way that you operate. I would like you to change. Yeah, I had a, I had a board at the time uh, that, luckily enough for me, uh, saw uh, the, the, the good to great or... Um, Harvard have a scale of leadership one to five. Most chief executives in the world get to four, very few get to five. Uh, and um, uh, the board at the time, whilst this particular personality uh, trait for me was really irritating to them, um, like it was really irritating to them. Can you elaborate um, on that personality trait? Well, you know, if you're a board and you turn up and your chief executive shows up and they've done all the thinking and they've got the perfect answer and everything's fully formed, oh, yeah. how, how do you contribute, yeah. right? So you crowd people out. Uh, and what you see in the movies is your classic command and control style leader, yeah. which is, you know, I've analysed the situation at a level that you can't. Here's the solution, and I'm directing you to do A, B, and C now. Uh, and so that gets imprinted on people, and they and they expect, uh, uh, you know, that's the way that leadership plays out. And I certainly did in my early years. Yeah. Um, and, and what you realise is that you're immediately limiting people's potential, uh, and the impact that they can have. And uh, it's not until you learn how to step back and conduct and coach at the same time mm. uh, that you make space for everybody to, to join the music and have an impact on the performance. It's so interesting because one of the traits you said you didn't like was being told what to do, let's say, that you wanted mm. to run your own ship. And yet you were doing that to other people. You were yeah. saying, I've, I've analysed the situation, yeah. I'm in control, yeah. this is what you'll do. I would and it didn't get the outcome I would never wanted. have worked for a 30-year-old me. Right. Yeah, wow. Because <laughs> you think that people should be empowered to be their best self and do the best work they can with as free a rope as they can be given? Freedom within a framework. Freedom within a framework, Team, nice. Teams always have to fly in formation. Um, I have a I have a little equation that sits in my mind all the time, uh, and that is uh, behavior equals belief plus belonging multiplied by trust. Ooh, can you say that again slowly? Yes. Belief, a behavior equals belief plus belonging multiplied by trust. Excellent. So if you're in a group of people and you've got behaviors, it'll either be because everyone's not engaged in the same belief set. And that's quite okay. That's normal. Um, the All Blacks are off to the World Cup and they all believe they're going to win it. Mm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the team. Mm. Um, belonging is how you fly in formation. So uh, if the All Blacks are off to the World Cup and they all believe they're going to win it, but they all think they're going to win it doing something different, then they're not going to behave as a team and, and ultimately achieve that outcome. And uh, if everyone's so rigidly lined up on the one way of doing it, then you don't have the ability to pivot or change when your context changes. Uh, and so um, people will never pivot or change or, or change, uh, you know, make a difference in, their, in, the, in a changing context 
if it's a low trust environment because personal risk goes goes up very high when environments are low trust. Mm. So if you really if you if you if the All Blacks are off to the World Cup and they all believe they're going to win it and they all belong to the same approach of how they're going to win it, um, but they come up against a team that's worked that out. In a low trust environment, they'll just keep trying to do it the way that they've they've all agreed they're going to do it, and ultimately they'll probably lose. And we've seen that in past World Cups before. But if it's a high trust environment and different individuals can take the lead for different reasons uh, based on the context they're in, then they're much more likely to have the intelligence as a group to change their behaviour. And so belief, belonging and trust to the three legs to the behaviour stall. Mm. Take away any one of them and you impact behaviour uh, dramatically. And so when I look at young people today, I've got young children, uh, it's the personal risk in their environment that, that drives the behaviours that we were talking about earlier. Um, and it's the trust thing. Um, social media just eats away mm-hmm. uh, your ability to trust other people's behaviour because you're not physically present in that group. You're, you're um, artificially present and therefore you've removed uh, your ability to judge trust based on human signals, you know, behavioural signals, etc. Uh, and as a result, um, I think that environment becomes very toxic mm, very fast. Mm, that's mm. interesting. Just going back to the qualities of, of leadership, you've been described as a strong leader and one that knows how to keep people steady and focused when times are very tough. Now, does that statement... I'm just realising how dark it is. Yeah, I was just thinking that. The sun must have gone behind the clouds and is just going to get up and turn the lights on. I'm like, I can barely see Malcolm across the table. So so you've been described as a strong leader, one that knows how to keep people steady and focused when times are very tough. Does any particular event or stage of your professional career come to mind when you hear this statement? You've alluded to a couple yeah. earlier, but whether you want to go down that track or, or take a new thread. Certainly from a, um, a leading through adversity, resilience, uh, stability, etc. The most formative years were the post-earthquake years in Christchurch. The toughest time I've ever been a chief executive was uh, the terror attacks in Christchurch. That was... That was a very, very harrowing 24 hours, followed by a very difficult 10 days or so. Um, We had uh, roughly 24,000 people on the airport. Uh, We were advised we were a target for lone shooters at that point. Um, And uh, and we knew we had people who were with us that had lost family members already. Uh, And uh, they chose to stay on station, etc. Uh, and it was a very confused situation, um, but that, that was the toughest. I think COVID-19 would be my proudest. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, we got every single one of our staff members through COVID-19. Uh, we remained profitable as an airport through COVID-19. Uh, we carried most of our customers through COVID-19. We paid a dividend to shareholders every year wow. during COVID-19. Um, and uh, and that was entirely pre-planned. Mm. Uh, that was all the learnings that we got out of the earthquake mm. put into a pandemic plan that we'd actually written in 2018 that we got to practice in 2020. Uh, and we thought our worst case scenario would be 
minus 50% revenue. It was minus 90% revenue. Um, But uh, uh, the the lessons that I learnt through the terror attacks and the Christchurch earthquakes, etc., um, really, really shaped the way that I led through COVID-19. And the principal difference is I focus very heavily on managing people's energy rather than their time. And uh, the the ability or or the reality of these events is they have an impact phase. And um, and that's when the event's still unfolding. You can't quite quantify it yet. And what I observed uh, through a, for, for a number of colleagues uh, who who are other chief executives and other other businesses is uh, you know they threw their people at it really hard and fast to start with, like it was something that you could overcome, uh, and it's an entirely natural reaction because I did exactly the same after the Christchurch earthquakes, mm-hmm. but I learned through that process that. The event's so much bigger than you and you can't get your arms around it, you can't control it. All you do is you burn your people out. Mm-hmm. And so my philosophy in any of those types of things now is to manage people's energy. Time you've got heaps of, energy's a limited yeah. uh, resource. Uh, and moving back from Christchurch to Auckland, we've really noticed the difference COVID has had on Auckland versus Christchurch because we didn't have COVID. You know, we had the first lockdown mm-hmm. And then we basically had two wonderful years with the borders shut and at times no Aucklanders in the South <laughs> Island. Every restaurant was open. We could go anywhere in the yeah. weekends we wanted to and the weather was fantastic. Uh, whereas up here, you know, you had several lockdowns. Uh, you had to endure uh, um, a level of COVID intrusion that we just didn't have to in, in Christchurch. And uh, you can see the the remnants in people, they're quick to anger here, much quicker to anger here at the moment than Christchurch. Uh, and they're just, you know, they're, they're just burned out. They run out of energy. It's a, you know, it's a very drifty sense yeah. in Auckland yeah. at the moment. Now, before we, and I think we should segue shortly to what this big mistake is, mm. but just you speaking of energy management over time management, which I'm completely on board with, it's, that, that's a, a great shift of perspective. What did that look like in practice following the the Christchurch mosque attack? And how do you hold yourself together? So you're talking about what you're doing for others, but how are you managing yourself? Uh, in terms of the terror attacks, I didn't hold myself together. That's that's the reality of it. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I needed... Uh, a, 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 I can't remember how many sessions, but a fair degree of counselling sessions mm. afterwards to deal with uh, the residual trauma that sat there, uh, and you know it was a, it was it was an acutely intense and quite terrifying thing to be a part of, uh, particularly to be a decision maker with twenty four thousand people in, in in my care at the time. Uh, but um, you know the following ten days were were really challenging. Um, we had, you know, 58 funerals or something like that, uh, etc. And, you know, lots of people were really, really frightened. They're frightened at work, they're frightened at home, uh, etc. So the reality is you don't hold yourself together. I don't really see the point in, 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 you know, trying to portray that you're holding yourself together. I was really open with the team that, uh, you know, that I needed support after that. Um, I think uh, through COVID, it was much easier because it didn't have that 
um, that really sort of visceral acute impact uh, that, that the terror attacks did. Um, but uh, in essence, the way that it plays out is um, you focus people on things that are within their control um, because that's much lower energy than mm. trying to work on things that Excellent. are beyond their control. Yeah, great. Awesome. Okay. Malcolm, big mistake. <laughs> what have you got for us? Paint us a picture. Where where are we at in your professional history? Look, I think um, I, know, I could list off endless number of mistakes. <laughs> you could go back into my past and talk to people that have worked with me uh, that would probably add to that list of uh, endless mistakes. For the, for the record, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, the, the, the biggest mistake I made in the first half of my career is not understanding the difference between being in the passenger seat and the driver's seat of my life uh, and my career. <clears throat> so many people, um, you know, set an ambition from a career perspective uh, without understanding what their personal purpose and values in life are. And then they join a company and they expect that company to deliver them a pathway to get to that outcome. Mm. Uh, and that's called the path of least resistance. Uh, and they get really disappointed in their 30s or early 40s because they're not getting there. Or they get really disappointed because... You know, they expected to be there two years after they started out of university, etc., and they haven't got there. Um, and uh, and they get trapped in this, uh, this sort of self-repeating cycle where they're disappointed in the decisions of other people. Uh, and I didn't understand that in my 20s, but I wished what I'd learnt in my late 30s, I'd known in my 20s, mm. uh, because ultimately uh, you need to be in the driver's seat uh, of your own career uh, and you need to be in the driver's seat of uh, your own life. Mm. Uh, and if you're feeling like you're not, uh, then there's lots of different ways that you can get back into uh, into the driver's seat. Um, but for me, that, that would be, you know, the biggest mistake of my career. Yeah. Not everyone gets the opportunity to be in the driver's seat or do you think that we all have the opportunity to be in that? You do? Okay. Yeah, but it's it's just the, the concept is that you're taking your you're taking initiative. You're you're putting things into your own uh, taking things into your own hands to make things happen for you, as opposed to woe is me. I'm I'm just a you know I'm being caught up with the tide. Why isn't things happening the way I want? Whereas what I think you're saying, Malcolm, is that if you want something to happen, you have to take charge and make it happen for yourself. Yeah, there are, there are, there are the fundamentally four levels of leadership you will experience in life. Uh, uh, it's leading yourself, leading others, leading systems and processes, and leading leaders. Now, mm. I'm at the leading leaders stage, okay? Um, but... You don't get to the next level until you've mastered the first one. Uh, and so when I talk to, uh, you know, student groups and young people, etc., um, the only thing out of all three of those that is in your control is leading yourself. Excellent. Okay. That is 95% of being in the driver's seat of your own journey, how you lead yourself how you show up, what your purposes, personal purpose in life is, your value set, whether you tolerate being in a group that has a different value set to you, uh, you know, that'll eat away at you, that'll that'll destroy your ability to lead yourself, mm -hmm. etc. 
Um, but leading yourself is the single most important thing you can do to remain in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are leading others, you'll have a plan. And so if you don't have a plan on how you're going to lead yourself, then you, you, you really are relying on others to get to leading systems and processes and leading leaders, etc. And so, you know, when you ask me that first question, how do you become a chief executive? Uh, you lead yourself there. Uh, and if you think about the evolution that I've just discussed as I went, I went through my career, ultimately it's how I've led myself through each of those phases and my ability to, uh, to adapt and evolve at, at each stage. And so it doesn't matter who, who you are, you have the ability to lead yourself. It doesn't matter what level in society you are. Um, some doors will open up and make it easy to lead yourself in that way. Uh, but um, uh, ultimately, leading yourself is the single most important lesson to learn and the biggest mistake that I didn't, mm. you know, I made through my 20s and early 30s. So paint us a picture for where you were at at the stage of life where you could have benefited. Where were you working? What was a day in the life of? Or, or uh, what were the challenges that you were coming up against where this mindset could have benefited you? So I was... Um, uh, I was in my, uh, I was 34, I remember doing 34. Um, so you already had your first CE role. I was on my second CE yeah, role, wow. yeah. Uh, and all my friends were getting promoted to bigger jobs. And I was, I was, I was leading this company, it was a great company, but it was, it was worth about $40 million. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I loved it. I loved the people I was working with and for. Uh, um, but everyone else in my peer set, was getting bigger jobs, you know, getting more money, etc. cetera. Uh, and ultimately, I got really, really negative and grumpy about uh, everything. I remember um, uh, sitting with my wife um, in a spa pool looking at the stars and saying, you know, this, this might be as good as it gets. Uh, and she kind of kicked me and... Uh, <laughs> I'm uh, 34. And, yeah, <laughs> and said, um, you know, you, 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 you're probably overthinking this again. And the next day, I had a coffee with a friend of mine who was uh, on the executive at Air New Zealand, and he said, look, um, your, your problem is you don't have a plan. So you, you, you're expecting everybody else to deliver this grand vision that you've got. Uh, you're not delivering it yourself. And so get a plan. Uh, and I remember saying to him, yeah, how do I do that? And he put me on to a chap uh, who has coached me ever since uh, professionally. Um, but it took three sessions with him where it was really simple. He said, where do you want to be when you're 65? And work back from there. Uh, and then map out the years and the lives of your children and your partner uh, because then you'll start to see that there are years that you can make decisions in and years that you can't make decisions in. So if you know where you want to be by 65, and you've worked out what the stepping stones are to get to that point, you'd start allocating time to those stepping stones. Uh, and then you can see you know, what years you have that you can make decisions in. So because your children are a certain uh, year in school, and because that's an easy year to move them, it's because you know, your wife's been in, in the current job for five years, so maybe it's time for a change. You know, those types of personal things that always conflict with your with your career plan. And so still to this day, I have a spreadsheet that goes out to 65 
uh, and uh, and I know which years I can make decisions in. And uh, and that sounds really you know neat and organised and does. all that mm. sort of stuff. And so 2020 was a decision year for me. Uh, that was a year that I could move jobs without materially disrupting my children uh, and mm. their schooling. <clears throat> and I was uh, so I began in 2019 working the plan to change jobs. And uh, in uh, March 2020. Uh, I was down to the last person for a particular job overseas that I was very interested in, and the borders shut. (sighs) Suddenly your context changes, okay? There's no way that I was going to leave Christchurch Airport and the people there when they were facing minus 90%, you know, income, etc., and their jobs were on the line, uh, etc. I wasn't going to suddenly leave the country for a better job. A, I didn't know whether we'd ever get back at that stage. So you have to change your plan at that point. Do you rip point. the planner off and set fire to it at that point? No, you just use some nasty words, <laughs> you know, get it out of your system and accept that, you know, the events are bigger than yourself. Mm. And so as a result of that, um, you know, my decision-making year was 2020, but I ended up making a decision in uh, 22 last year uh, to move to this role because you know the world just didn't let me follow my plan Mm. so i ended up disrupting my youngest daughter's schooling i had to move her in year 12 really didn't want to have to do that um but COVID is what it is and so are you having parent guilt about that or how of course (laughs) um you know she's in the process of applying for prefect roles at the moment having been at a school for six months. Wow. She'd been at her previous school since she started school. She would have been a prefect at that school, hands down, and she may not be a prefect at this Mm. school, and I've robbed her of that Mm. as a result of, you know, decisions that I've had to make. Um, But, you know, that is is part of life, and Mm. how you decide to... um, to hold yourself and be present in those challenges is how you lead Mm. yourself. Uh, and how you choose to do that will reflect how others see you in those moments. And plus it won't make your daughter very interesting if she doesn't have traumatic stories of what her father did to her <laughs> when she was young. He moved me and That's I was it. going to be a prefect. And, and I'm other, not yeah. a lawyer now because of my father's decision. And, and the other two got it so easy <laughs> yeah. and they never had the They day. were yeah. the favourites. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everything is a trade-off though. Yeah. But what I love about this idea of this, this plan, because I think people recoil slightly when they hear of a plan because they they think it implies inflexibility but as you've just pointed out sometimes the best plan is the plan that lets you change your plan and in that instance you know you recognize that you couldn't control the situation which almost goes back to what we were talking before about energy management Mm -hmm. you could only control what Mm -hmm. you could control Mm -hmm. um but similarly you know life does Life does get in the way. Life's uh, real. So, but but what I like about it particularly is that it means that you don't suddenly find yourself perhaps beyond a point and thinking, oh, that was my missed opportunity to move last year. I I kind of can't do it now until yeah. X. So it's 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 almost demystifying or uh, unveiling those 
those potential opportunities before they happen so you can prepare yourself accordingly. Absolutely. And yeah. do you have any more hot tub chats with your wife where you say, is this as good as it gets? <laughs> <laughs> no, like a good bottle of wine. It, get, it does get better. Actually, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Although yeah. I think that's an interesting point because there was an element of comparison there. Yeah. So yes. you were surrounded by peers that were obviously doing incredibly well yeah. too. Yeah. Had you had a different group of peers, you may have... But then, but then there's pros and cons because well, pros you want to surround cons. yourself with ambitious people yes. who are pushing you. So, so gonna... any commentary on on the influence of of friends or, or peers or or the, the people that you surround yourself with. Well, one of the core things about leading yourself is understanding that you will only notice people around you that directly reflect your own ambitions. Mm. Yeah. So even if you're surrounded by a mixed group of people. The people that have the impact on your mind will be the people that you directly compare yourself to subconsciously. Mm. So right. Now, is there someone that comes to mind when you say that you've made reference to this professional coach and perhaps mm. we go down that route and what you what you learnt from uh, him or her, uh, but is, is there anyone else that comes to mind or is it worth talking about that professional coach of yours? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, the professional coach really has has uh, played two roles in my life. Um, Chris Johnson is his name. Uh, um, first of all, he got me organised, you know, and as, as I said earlier, if you want to lead yourself and you don't have a plan, what are you doing? Uh, you're wandering. That's what you're doing. Um, the second thing is he's my sense check, you know, he's my, he's, he's my sounding board on a lot of things. He's talked me out of more jobs than than I've taken in my life because they don't fit where you're trying to get to and who you are. Uh, but he's he, he's um, he's one of a number of people that have influenced me on my uh, journey. Um, another another chap is uh, uh, a guy by the name of Wade Jackson who runs um, uh, a theatre here in Auckland. Uh, he also does uh, storytelling coaching and he runs a program called Jolt, which is a two-day personal uh, program. It's about discovering your own uh, purpose and values in life. That's a really critical ingredient to leading yourself. Mm. You know, that's your, that's your true north on your compass. And have you done his program? Or has this Absol- been- absolutely. And not yeah. only that, but uh, in my last two CE roles, every single staff member went through his Amazing. program as well. Uh, because if you're asking people to lead themselves mm. first, you've got to give them the toolbox to do it. Mm. And very, very few of us leave school or university or an apprenticeship with an understanding of what we think our purpose in life is, uh, and in particular, what our value set is. Mm. And very few people say that stuff out loud. Mine's written down, it's on my plan. I have a pretty good you know, sense of, in fact, it's on my LinkedIn profile as well, mm. uh, in terms of you know what, what I want my purpose to be in life. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an excellent two-day program, and you give people the toolbox to start leading themselves. Mm. So there's a framework, get a plan. Uh, then there's the toolbox of what's your personal purpose and values. Mm. Start thinking about whether, you know, where you're working, who you're with is actually contributing to uh, mm. to that journey, uh, et cetera. And then for me, as, as I've become more senior, I've been lucky enough to study in places in the world that, um, you know, have really, really developed uh, in my thinking around human behavior, um, uh, psychology, um, you know, my equation of behavior equals belief plus belonging multiplied by trust 
really is the summation of about eight different uh, post-grad study programs that I've been on. Um, and again, you know, I like frameworks because they organise your thinking and your approach to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still today, those are the foundation pieces of, of how I turn up to lead leaders. So, and which leads me to my next question. Is it difficult to lead leaders? In my mind, I'm thinking you're just, you're just leading a bunch of A-type personalities who have very strong opinions and don't necessarily want to bend to a will. It's it's a it's a oxymoron of statement. You never lead leaders. <laughs> uh, you know you 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 just don't. Um, ultimately, you play a role in organising the orchestra, uh, and you get to choose the music, and then you pick up your conducting wand and you you coach and conduct until mm-hmm. the performances we we get the applause and. Um, you know, that's a really strong evolution in my leadership. It's a very strong metaphor for me. Um, there's a chap by the name of Ben Zander, um, who is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, um, probably one of the biggest influences in my uh, executive leadership uh, development. Uh, he and his wife, Rosemary, um, uh, teach program called Leading with Possibility, which is the foundation of how I lead leaders. Mm. Uh, and um, and it's where the notion of the conductor never plays an instrument mm. comes from. But he has, in, in Leading with Possibility, he has this approach, which is uh, everybody gets an A. Uh, so what we do in everything we, we, we do in life, whether it's in sports or in culture or in business uh, is we we finish the year grading everybody and literally. his literally grading everybody wow. you know you 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 were at a hundred percent of your performance expectation you were at 150 you're at 75 you got first you got second you got top of the class you know you you, you ranked 15 or whatever we just obsessed with ranking systems as human beings uh, and it's and it, and it goes back to the days when we roamed the savannah and everybody had to uh, you know have a role in the in the group for the group to survive. We've become the most prolific animals on the planet because of our ability to work together and organise ourselves in very complex large communities. And part of doing that is ranking people, whether we like it or not. It's what we mm. do as humans. Mm. Uh, but it has. The industrial process of that means that when you move into uh, your professional career, that uh, we end up with these pass-fail, overachieve, underachieve type uh, structures. Um, most of them are retrospective. So here's your objectives for the year. Um, good luck with that. At the end of the year, we'll, um, you know, we'll we'll judge how you how you did against that. Ben's philosophy is. Write down at the start of the year what an A performance is mm. and then live it and everybody mm. gets an A. Mm. And so rather than judging at the end, you judge at the, at the start. Mm. So at Christchurch... Is everyone getting an A? I'm having issues with my... Yeah. I'm out of touch with the... So I'm having to... Sorry. As a parent, I'm having to undo a lot of things that was taught to me in my, which is you will be given an A and not everyone gets an A and and you will be the best and all of this sort of stuff, which isn't 
the best style of leadership or the best way to teach a child because you're meant to reward the effort that you put in. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we all sit around a table and we all get an A feels like the participation awards, whereas you actually do have a winner. Mm. Mm. But is it my A or your A? Mm. What, what def- yeah, whose mm. version of success are we sacking it up against? So the bit that's missing in terms of um, no matter what you do, everybody gets an A. <laughs> I hate okay. that. All right. Oh, it makes me want to gag. Exactly. <laughs> the bit that's missing in that compared to what I'm saying is be really clear at the start of the year mm. what will get you an A. Okay. Yeah. And then live to that level. Mm. Am I living my A or am I living your A? Because your version of what you think I'm capable of mm-hmm. might be very different than what I than what I. So think yeah, that's I'm what you're saying, of. right? Is yeah. that we've all got these. Uh, so you're accepting my standards, yeah. as so opposed to what you want let's, from me. Let's, let's say hypothetically yeah. that you're you're an executive and my executive. Yeah. Okay. And we're at the start of the year, and I say to you. I want you to sell ten widgets this year, and you and I'm your doing a day. okay, you and your <laughs> mind goes, man, I could sell forty. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, yeah, ten sounds like a stretch. Yep, that's great, excellent. And you get to the end of the year, and you've sold ten. You get my A, but your D. Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. And so I would do that. As if well. we change that conversation, and I say to you. What does an A look like this year? Let's talk about that. Uh, or let, what's 100% look like mm-hmm. this year? And you ultimately go, well, I'm not going to say 40 because that's a bit risky. That's, that's a worry for me. But I'm pretty confident I can get to 30. And you go, um, 30. And I, I'm sitting here going, man, that's three times what I thought. Um, okay, let's settle on 30. And you get to the end of the year and you sold 31, okay? Do you get my A or do you get your A? I don't get any A because I think I could still do better, but that's my problem, yeah, so you not yours. <laughs> you, wouldn't get Anna's, you wouldn't get the Anna A. It's very hard to, for me to reach an A because I always think I could do better. So this, I guess, goes back to what you were saying, Malcolm, about the role of the conductor or the, the, the leader is presumably during those conversations there's this you know it's obviously more complex than we've just described but but there's this to and froing of well I think I could do 30 do you really think you do 30 could you do any more so there's this there's this as you say coaching element where you're extracting the best possible goal and aren't I going to play the system aren't I going to let's say want your praise and I'm going to say, oh, I'll sell 20. And realistically, I know I'm going to sell a lot more, but I'm underestimating it because I can't wait for you to go, oh, look, that was fantastic. Yeah. You're amazing. It's all made up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We make it up. Yeah. Okay. All I'm saying yeah. is my approach is to try and unlock the potential nice. rather than set an expectation. Yeah. Nice. Now, here's the reality. Okay. You're going to end up with a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. That's that's just the way it's going to end up. Uh, but um, that approach at Christchurch Airport, uh, if I look at Christchurch Airport, it was 86 years old when I left. Half of all of the value, roughly 1.6 billion odd, was created between 2014 and 2019. So half of the value was created in five of the 86 years. 
following a leading with possibility philosophy of how do you unlock the potential of this mm. rather than uh, an iterative approach of how do we grow by 3% every year or 4% mm. every year and well done, you met my expectations. But I never asked you if my expectations were your expectations. Mm. And so it's, a, it's, it's ultimately about how do you draw out uh, the ambition of individuals, mm, and nice. you only do that if it's a low, if it's a high trust environment, mm. low personal risk. And so, the more judgment that I put in place, mm. the more personal risk I bring into play. I, oh, you go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I just it was really just a comment on that whole. You know, you almost said it as a throwaway comment after setting those those goals, which is and then just live it, as in live that a which I love because it almost deconstructs this idea of constraints we we tend to put in place. Like in order for me to sell 30 widgets, these things have to happen and I'll hopefully get that by the end of the year. But but Tim Ferriss, who I'm a big fan of and I know Anna is too, he says, think about where you want to be in 10 years' time and then if you had to, how could you make that in six months, happen in six months' time? And it almost deconstructs that idea of a set timeline and you know what does success look like and is there a more effective way we could do that because I could just imagine by saying okay well my A is looking like 30 widgets okay time to do 30 widgets like no no matter what I mean it's just uh, yeah I, I like the, I like that approach. So if you look at performance under a, uh, a leading with possibility framework it's always exponential for the reason that you just right so you set yourself an a but next year's a is an a plus yeah. plus and it and it becomes exponential I can imagine. Uh, whereas most performance management systems create a linear outcome because you're delivering my expectations not living your ambitions mm, yeah yeah and that phrase you said earlier unlocking ambition mm. I love that. Yeah, excellent. Did you want to add Well, something? I was going to now change and move on to Genesis. Yeah. And so you're the CEO there. And what's your A look like? So you've had all of the success with Christchurch and you've made all this money and you get to sit in your hot tub and go, isn't life great? And mm. now I'm onto this new thing. So what, is it, what does it look like? So for me, uh, I've been there six months. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's never going to be about what does it look like for me. So one of the first things I do when I arrive in an organisation or a team or anything like that is I undertake an emotional diagnostic process. So I have two researchers that I work with. They come in and they do a big qualitative research piece across the team. Wow, wow. And they ultimately define where the emotional real estate of the team are. Two, two things are really important out of that. One is where, where does the ambition sit in the team? And the, se and the second thing is... Um, what's the love language or the pride points of the group? And uh, that becomes kind of like my Bible around um, what the ambition for this orchestra might might look like uh, and how do I unlock that? Uh, because when the, when the people are going through the research process, they're not thinking this is translating into a set of 10-year objectives for you know the organisation. They're thinking this is ultimately... Um, you know, the, the types of questions are, what does your best day at work look like? Uh, what's the best version of Genesis look like, etc.? cetera? Mm. Uh, when you're retired, what would make you proud to look back and say you were part of Genesis and, and so on uh, and, so, and so forth, etc. And ultimately, um, you know, for this group of people, 
you know, they, they, they want to be a good ancestor for New Zealand on our journey to net zero 2050. And to do that, you know, we're going to have to achieve two things as a group. One is uh, we're going to have to play a really aggressive and proactive role in electrifying more of New Zealand, um, more transport, more heating, things like that. Um, that's kind of our bread and butter. That's in our wheelhouse. Um, but also um, we're going to have to sweep our own front yard as well because we own Huntley Power Station mm. that runs predominantly on gas but in a dry year in New Zealand it burns a lot of coal mm-hmm. uh, and at the moment you can't get the lights on without it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to solve that problem, that's our challenge. We have to sweep our own front yard and we have to new- help New Zealand sweep its front yard as well. And so I think there's a genuine uh, desire within that group uh, to have a, an impact on New Zealand that is well beyond just ourselves. Uh, you know, um, the concept of an electric, prosperous and equal New Zealand sits really firmly in this group. Um, they've, a lot of people that work on our generation sites have been there for three generations. Mm. Their grandfather built it. Uh, you know, there is um, historic treaty grievances uh, that attach to many of these sites mm. where water was used in a way that you know locally we didn't have a say in things were built in places that you know had had marae and cemeteries on it and and things like that it's not just genesis it's right across the electricity sector in new zealand so um i like to do that diagnostic piece coming in as the chief executive and i do that before i arrive Um, it means that i don't turn up on day one and go hi i'm malcolm i'm here to fix things because uh, nobody said it was broken, uh, <laughs> okay? Uh, I, much, I much prefer to turn up and say, this is what you've told me um, before I arrived, uh, and here's the process that we're going to work through to unlock that ambition uh, to have an impact on our communities and our country in a way that's well beyond just us mm-hmm. as a as a company, and so um, you know I fully expect Genesis will live into that uh, that ambition over the next decade or so. Do you meet a lot of resistance in this? Because that's quite the statements you've come out with are quite powerful and impactful, but surely not everyone's going to think the same way as you. Uh, you get um, you get a normal bell curve of people who get over-enthusiastic about that, under-enthusiastic and probably sitting about the middle. But the the point of doing the uh, qualitative research piece before you arrive is to kind of land your your, your, your initial story about in the centre of all of that. Mm. Uh, and then you said about unlocking that ambition. And so uh, I generally do that exercise every three years uh, and you map kind of where that ambition is sitting over that time. Uh, and again, it's exponential. Uh, once you once you once you get people, you know, flying in formation and 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 really um, uh, living that ambition set, um, it becomes a very powerful um, uh, sort of self feeding system. What do you think about the new Auckland compost bins that have been delivered to everyone? <laughs> Which is very topical and very yeah, passionate subject yeah. in all coffee groups yeah, I right, attend. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, what do I think about them? Um, I think Malcolm's you know working what on I some much other, bigger scale which, stuff. Well, well, do you know what I heard the other day, which what? was very interesting? Uh, people who compost at home and have done, so they've yeah. got worm farms, they've done all of this, can't opt out. So they're charged $70 
for something they don't use and they are oh. very eco. Mm. So yeah. I would be annoyed yeah, if that was me as well because I don't have a use for it and I'm paying $70 yeah. and I naturally compost and have all the worm farms. Mm. Yeah. Look, um, my, my, my household loves them. Uh, you know, they're, they're fully embraced uh, into it. Um, the, the reality is that... Uh, the embedded nature of uh, carbon emissions in our everyday lifestyles uh, is such that you can't you can't you can't walk away from any ten cent piece that's available. It's all about all the ten cent pieces on the pile that adds up to to real action. One of the things that's really interesting uh, here in Auckland is um, you know there's enough uh, methane produced from uh, landfill around Auckland. To replace all of the fossil gas in uh, in Auckland City today, right. uh, but we don't do that. Um, at the moment, we burn that into electricity, uh, and then we pump uh, fossil gas up from Taranaki mm. to um, to use here in Auckland. Mm. Um, so there's lots of different uh, solutions. When we lived in Auckland, um, uh, water was you know a really big thing. Water rates, everyone was focused on water. Nobody brushed their teeth with the water running and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And we moved to Christchurch and we were sitting there on the first night in this house that we'd rented. It was a lovely house. It was like a Tuscan villa and had beautiful gardens. Did it have a spa pool? It didn't have a spa <gasps> pool. And we had, had all sprinklers. The, we had all the doors open and it was like 7 o'clock and suddenly the entire backyard exploded mm. into a mist of water. Wow. And uh, my wife was, close the doors, everything's getting wet. And I was like, who's paying for that water? <laughs> because in Auckland, you had to pay for it. Mm. In Christchurch, you didn't pay for water. And so wow. the the sprinkler systems, it, half of it went down the road. I, I was just ho- horrified. My kids were absolutely horrified at the amount of water that was wasted irrigating mm. the, um, the garden. Uh, and so, um, you know, we all get conditioned to an abundance of resources mm. until those resources mm. suddenly start to cost us something and then that focuses the mind uh, and um, and so look um, who knows maybe maybe Auckland leads the world in uh, in garden in um, food bins yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, now a question yeah, somebody knows you is ty point mm-hmm. uh, what outcome that is to stay or to go for the aluminium smelter would, in his view, be best for New Zealand? So, in your view, do you want to so, just explain? So that? Well, yeah. so so, it's an aluminium smelter, yeah. and I think there's situations going on at the moment. Whether it's going to stay, go, there's discussions around it. So, in your view, what is the best outcome? What do you want to happen to that? And if you feel like you need to add any context for yes. those who might not be aware of what Please that is, do. Yeah. so T Y Point is the aluminium smelter at Bluff in New Zealand. Uh, and one of the, the inputs in aluminium is uh, industrial heat. And in New Zealand, uh, we uh, supply that industrial heat through renewable electricity, mm-hmm. which is quite unusual in the world, particularly in terms of um, providing aluminium. So whilst it's not fully green aluminium, it's amongst the lowest carbon aluminium in the world. That's a pretty unique thing for New Zealand to be, you know, to be um, known for. And um, when, when you look at uh, energy transition in the world, New Zealand's very unusual in its electricity system 
and that most com countries need to spend the next 20 years taking coal and gas out of their electricity system. Mm, yeah. You know, we're already 90% renewable. We're 20 years ahead of the rest of the world. We have an opportunity to build a renewable system that allows us to green movies, data centres, um, uh, manufacturing, the likes of, uh, you know, aluminium cans that we all uh, rely on, etc. And so um, I think the question is bigger than just TY. The question is, does New Zealand have an ambition to build just enough renewable energy to meet net zero 2050 for New Zealand? Or do we have an ambition to build enough to actually help decarbonise beyond New Zealand itself? And so we produce enough protein at the moment for many hundreds of millions of people in the world. We can produce enough decarbonisation for many hundreds of millions of people in the world as well. Uh, we have enough opportunity to build renewable energy to, to do that. Right. And so I think the question for me is much more, is New Zealand worried about uh, an overbuild of renewables or an under-demand for renewables? Because we can't export our electricity. Mm -hmm. So companies or um, operations like TY, I think, show us a way that New Zealand can actually impact the greening of supply chains globally uh, far beyond our shores and far beyond our own mm. uh, focus of just net zero 2050. So we can't export energy? We can't export electricity because no. the cables are too of, far to anywhere of course, else. Of course, if we can crack that then who knows what's possible. If you can crack that, another, you, I won't be sitting here, you won't be sitting here, we'll be in clover. Um, but what we can do is um, we can import um, the users of electricity yes. uh, and remove them from yeah, coal understood. or gas fired elsewhere. Mm. It's kind of interesting um, coming coming out of airports. You know, aviation. The, the equation is very mm. simple: airplanes equal climate change, right? Totally. <coughs> Yet, um, mobile phones now drive more CO two in the world than uh, airplanes do, <laughs> because every time you open an app, the phone goes to a data center and pulls the data for that app. Most of the data centers in the world run on coal-fired electricity. And so every time you open an app, you're drawing coal-fired electricity from somewhere else in the world. Generally, there are some apps that use data centers in New Zealand. But New Zealand can be a world superpower in green data centers. Wow. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, so that's what I mean about the embedded nature of, of this and the fact that most of the data we use on our apps comes from data centers wow. in Australia, wow. which is wow. largely coal-fired. Oh, uh, and, um, and so, you know, your mobile phone, uh, particularly social media, yeah. AI supercharging this, Uses it runs on on data that needs electricity to survive, wow. uh, and that that um, that data is not sitting here in New Zealand. Mm. You almost answered well. You you pretty much did answer the a question I was going to ask you as our penultimate question, and we will go on to our last question very shortly, which is why are you excited about the future? But I think you pretty much. Uh, answered it just there that and New I Zealand always is have an extra away. question by the way which yeah. is oh, my style so. okay okay do you want to ask your penultimate yes, question yes because then? we haven't touched upon this at all so this is a new topic okay. and it is an important one I think we well. have to do a round two because there's so much we didn't talk I about I know it's yeah. so fascinating anyway women in leadership women in leadership do you think there needs to be more of a spotlight is there a problem what's your take on it um 
as as a you know, I've I've got two daughters, and I have the same expectations for them uh, and their opportunities in life as I do for my son. Um, and not the one who's not a prefect, though. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all it's uh, all over for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one uh, daughter. Yeah, yeah. It's um, all over for her. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's 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 a really interesting uh, question mm. because. Um, why why do I have a set of expectations for my children that has no bias one way or the other based on mm. uh, their sex? Uh, yet for my parents, that wasn't the way mm. that they, they viewed their children. And so I think uh, there's always a lag between the statistics and the societal context mm. change. Um, and so, um, uh, you, you know... To me, uh, we're in a transition period where those statistics are catching up to the expectations mm. of society. Um, but I often question myself, you know, you're often looking for unconscious bias mm. because you can't find conscious bias in your decision making. Um, but for me, um, I, I, I don't even... I don't even acknowledge in my mind now, um, you know, whether someone's male or female sitting sitting mm. in a team that I'm part of. I don't even, you know, acknowledge from a race base. I don't yeah. think. Um, uh, so you're encouraged then by the the way things are the trending. So you don't necessarily think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they are as bad as people or statistics make it out to be. Well, I think no, I think it's behind. I think yeah. I think the statistics show that we're still catching up yeah. to that expectation. But for you personally, but isn't it, yeah. you just look at your board and you just look at the table around you and saying that you don't see gender. Well, I would see if it was a hundred percent men sitting sat in front of me or a hundred percent women. That's absolutely correct. So it's much more of a reverse sensitivity now than a conscious yes. uh, thought process. Mm. I would say even five years ago, it was still a conscious mm. thought process. Mm. So if I go to a conference now and you've got a whole panel of uh, men or a whole panel of women on the stage, that would register with mm. me. If you've got a mixed panel, that exactly. wouldn't register mm. with me. Yeah, I agree. Um, <clears throat> it'll, it'll be a work on for another 10 20 mm. odd years mm. i think the really big the really big change in in companies is uh is how um uh, people uh enter and exit the workplace uh during the the time you're forming your families uh, i think that is that is an area that i've seen enormous improvement in mm. um but i've also seen really interesting trends around um, uh, male primary caregivers. Oh, I love this topic. And, uh, you know, it's still way out of balance. Yeah. Um, but um, it was something that, you know, um, it's starting to happen in what I would call the industrial areas of companies, mm. which is really, really unusual. Mm. Uh, and when I was, um, when my, sorry, when I was, when, when my eldest daughter was 18 months old. I took a year off work. And she to, was your first? Was she, she was our first. Yeah. I took a year off work, oh, yeah, spent a year one. with her, and my wife worked. And um, it was the best year I've ever spent. Wow. It was fantastic. Wow. And you inevitably, you don't end up doing it. Did with you the access or, or have access to parental leave top-ups no. at that time? No, I took a year off. Um, we sold our house, uh, rented for a year, 
and we ultimately ended up buying buying back into the market again. You know, parents were horrified that I had just decided to take a year off to uh, spend a year with my with my daughter, mm. um, and you know, funded it by selling the house and taking the capital gain, and just figured that we had plenty of life left to make good on that, um, but would miss the opportunity to you know to have that time off, uh, and it's still. Uh, you know, some of, it was still my favourite favorite time. I loved it. It was fantastic. And now, obviously times have changed, what does Genesis, do you know what they offer paid like parental leave? Do you know what that is? Um, don't quote me on the exact okay. weeks, um, but it's, it's the maximum for both, uh, both parents. Um, uh, so it might be 26 weeks. It might, it's 26 or 28, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's I'm, I'm... Paid fully. So you've got your government top up by Genesis, fully paid. Yeah. Be wow. off. Yeah. Enjoy your children. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. That belongs to my predecessor, not me. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, um, uh, you know the current structure sits uh, sits there, but um, <clears throat> you know that's uh, I think reflective of the fact, as I said, that we've got uh, families in our business that are third, you know, third or fourth generation families particularly out in the regions in New Zealand. So um, uh, it's an area that I know that my predecessor mm. did an enormous amount of work on, uh, as he did around uh, uh, gender equity and, mm. and diversity. Um, he was a, a big champion for that in the business. So um, I can't take credit for that because I've only been there <laughs> six months and I inherited that. So but you're yeah. certainly not scrapping the policy. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> not anytime soon. No. Uh, so, so, Malcolm, what... To close close up this episode, what is the worst piece of advice you have received? The worst piece of advice I ever received was from the careers counsellor when I left school. Um, and the advice uh, I grew up in a rural. I, I was a, uh, I grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, I went through school dyslexic, undiagnosed. Nobody really knew about it in those days. Really struggled with reading. Um, Passed school certificate with 53%, um, got university entrance with 52%, mm. um, went to university and uh, passed with a 51% average. So 53, 52, mm. 51. I never did a postgraduate degree because mm. I might have failed it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I saw myself uh, as what I am today. Uh, in essence in my mind when I was leaving school and the careers counsellor was uh, very much around um, uh, uh, doing a trade apprenticeship locally uh, etc and I loved welding it was a big passion of mine I left school with welding certificates and uh, ARC and MIG and TIG welding etc because it was quite an industrial rural sort of um, uh, setting uh, and uh, and I took that advice, and it wasn't until mm, probably three or four months after I left school that I realised that all my friends were heading to university, uh, and um, and so I bailed out and went to university, and I literally phoned um, Waikato University where my friends were heading, and said what courses are still open. And the only one open was still the management course. Oh, and that's why I did management at Waikato. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. That's wow. So it was completely accidental uh, and driven by social need rather than anything planned. 
but that would be, you know, at the time I was really crushed by that advice because yeah. it wasn't the pathway I saw for myself. So what did you th- what do you think would have been the better advice or, or rather way for that count- career counsellor to manage they didn't ask you. me what I wanted to do. Right. right. Were they just looking at your, your they grades? Looked at, they looked at your grades wow. and pretty much just went off a list of what, you know, what might earn you an income. Goodness. Wow. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I remember talking to my parents and um, about it, and I just really was uh, really crushed uh, crushed by it. Um, it, was, it was very impactful. Um, it's very prescriptive, what, isn't it? It's and so... what do your parents say? So you go back, you're crushed, and what do your parents say? My parents always said, you know, you, 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 you follow what you think mm. is the thing you, mm. you should do. Um, which, when I say I was crushed, I mean, 24 hours later, I was over it. I was 18. <laughs> a teenage crush. I was off, yeah. off to a party, you know. So it was a crushed teenager, you know. Yeah. It doesn't last long. But it's dramatic uh, in those 24 hours. But it was, hours. you know, it has, yeah. it, I can still remember the the office, what the day was like. Um, oh, wow. You know, it was really, because yeah. I expected them to say, um, you know, this university or this university mm-hmm. or, you know, you should think about a career in business mm-hmm. or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I got, no, 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 mm-hmm. you, um, it's, that shouldn't be where it was. And it, it really just fundamentally came down to mm-hmm. they didn't ask me what I wanted to do. And I like that this also links back to basically the opposite strategy that you take now when you go into a business, which is finger on the pulse asking the questions yeah. before providing the strategy and yeah. and uh, journey forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Malcolm Johns, this has been such a treat. I know that for me, the uh, some key takeaways have been uh, there are four levels of leadership, leading oneself, leading others, leading systems and processes, and leading leaders. Uh, drive the car, don't be the passenger. And lastly, and I'll need you to fill in the gap here, behavior equals belief plus... Belonging. Belonging times trust. Right. Times trust. That is uh, such a such a strong uh, framework to keep in my mind. Uh, Anna, any, any last thoughts from, from you? No, I was thinking just then, I always ask hard questions or try to get the hard questions out. And it's really just because at the end of the conversation, I always want to think, oh, how much I have come to admire someone and what they've had to say. So I've been really grateful that you've answered them so frankly and honestly. It's been great. Thanks for your time. Thank you.